Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps, and SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone and it is by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere and with just a few taps I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets to Game 6 of the World Series. Really? So, no, I'm just kidding. I I'm not made of money. But you know, I would if I did if I did it, if I was made of money, mm -hmm. you would have seen me sitting next to Jason Bateman talking Ozark while we watch Altuve hit. And if he caught a home run, you would have snatched that home run out of his hands <laughs> and, and thrown it back thrown on it the field. SeatGeek <laughs> um, is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get that $20 rebate, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. Enter promo code WATCH. SeatGeek will send you 20 bucks after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. He's made of money. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, my Papadopoulos, it's Andy Greenwald! Big things today. Yeah, man. An all-indictment special. <laughs> Is that right? Did I get the email? Yeah. Did you get the email? Because you Ooh. want to check where that came from. Andy, it's Monday. It's Stranger Things Monday. It's Deuce Monday. It's Megan Abbott Monday. Big show. It's indictment Monday. I'm psyched. I'm, I'm dressed like Marty McFly, and it's not for Halloween. Look. I just want to let people know, just to paint the picture, today's the first day in Los Angeles where it's not 107 degrees. <laughs> There's a slight fog, right? Yeah. And people are acting like they live inside uh, Why, uh, where are you, when did Stephen you, King first of all, the Mist. When did you get so cynical? Second of all, I've lived here for way too long yeah. and been way too hot for so many years yeah. that if it goes beneath 70, you're damn right out comes the fleece. Look, out comes the fleece. Look, Zach Mack is wearing a full body parka right now. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, everybody's just wearing them scarves they got all summer. Yeah, come on, relax, uh, Andy. We're going to talk about Stranger Things season two, the first three episodes. First three, only first three. Yes, so we're going to do first three, second three on Thursday. Ooh, that's a big ask. Okay. Do you want to get through the season, or would you like to just say share your thoughts? I like it when you give me assignments live on the mic that I can't. Second refuse. three on Thursday, final three on Monday. Wow. Yeah. I know. And we're also going to be talking about Thor next Monday. So it's a big, big week for you. Yeah. Big week for me. A lot of stuff, a lot of watching stuff. Uh, we'll be joined Is, later in this episode. Let's hope the World Series ends soon because that's really that really with jammed our... my, my night up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the five and a half hour multi home run Woo. juiced balls World Series. Uh, we have Megan Abbott, one of the writers of The Deuce, joining us later in yeah. the episode. She's also an excellent novelist. And we'll have some book club news yeah, at the end we of the will show. Have some with book her. club news. But let's get, let's, let's start talking about ST. Mm hmm. All right. Um, you just snuggled back into the show like a warm blanket on an 80 de degree day in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, Andy, so the, the synths start. Mm -hmm. You're back in Hawkins. Yeah. Kids, kids are dressed up like Ghostbusters. It's Halloween, man. How were you excited? Are you, are, were, you, were you thrilled to be back? How, how much, how, what, how did the first images of the show, like, how did you greet them? Were you just like, oh, this is great. I'm so glad to be back. Not as much as I thought. Now, I don't want to be this guy, but it you know, kind of fits. Fits me as well as that vest fits It's good you. radio, so go ahead. Um, I love the score of the show. I love the look of the show. I love a lot of the performances on the show. Um, but what I realized as I was watching the first episode and then the second and, and, and third was that I don't really care so much about this show. And what struck me as kind of interesting was... The first season worked for me because it was so committed to creating this world, to creating these characters, to creating this, you know, 
this Batchet commitment to a very specific kind of John Carpentery, quasi like a little bit darker Spielberg vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Everything was consistent with that. There was there was horror at the margins, right? And actually, and I and I had forgotten this, and I went back and and reminded myself. There was it was darker at the beginning. I mean, the whole scene in the beginning when Eleven escapes and she goes to the diner and all those people just get killed. Yeah. Um, the idea of a boy being taken away from his family into this demon place, like it, it was jolting and jarring. This reminded me of a sequel so far anyway in the early going. In the same, it reminded me very much of an eighty sequel, which is to say, it wasn't about um, showing us something we hadn't seen. Four, which is already kind of a suspect comment when talking about Stranger Things. It was about celebrating what we liked the first time. And there was so much, um, it's not exposition if we already know the characters, but there was so much like, okay, here's where we left the chess pieces. And by the way, the chess pieces are dressed as Ghostbusters this year, and aren't they cute? That I found it a little tiring. Because here's the thing, those kids are great. But I like those kids doing something in the service of something, riding their bikes, trying to save their friend. I am less enamored of them just being those kids, to be honest. I didn't even remember their names. I just remembered that this was the kid who wore the hat and this was the kid uh, who, loved, who loved Eleven. Mm-hmm. It was more paper thin to me. And this was just like, OK, well, everybody is here's everybody back again. Now, did some things transcend that? Uh-huh. My, my pretty road criticism? Yes. Eleven is the star of the show. Millie Bobby Brown is fantastic. Her scenes with David Harbour are the best parts of the show. And that, to me, is the, the best. The, that's the best part of the show. Okay. Everything else I found, I found tiring. I mean, the, the, it's hitting the pleasure centers. It is, the Duffer brothers are nothing else if not wild shameless about just, they just steer right into it. Like some of the lines they say, the Hopper's big entrance where the cigarette is taken out of his mouth and an apple is put in. I mean, let's go for it. You know, I admire their commitment. Um, but, I actually, I, so I disagree I found, on a lot of different points hit, here. Hit me, hit me, because so I did not, all, I did not find, we, we talked on, we talked last week about how pleasurable this was going to be. I didn't feel that great to be back in Hawkins. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one of the things I think I missed this season was that feeling of, um, ramping up to something. So I feel like pretty immediately in this season, we get back into the plot plot part of it where it's like, what's up with the upside down and. And what's going like like they they are it's very much an extension of the first season in that there isn't I didn't feel that reset. There's some stuff in the arcade. They're hanging out. They've all gone through slight changes or whatever. But I didn't feel like there was enough of a let's bring it back down to 10 so that we can get we can slowly ramp it up to 100. I thought it was back down around 35, if that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? In terms of like the tension. And I guess that would make sense if you had gone through something as traumatic as what these kids go through in the first season, you wouldn't necessarily be able to go back to normal. They very quickly get back into um, these kids versus the upside down, these kids versus this this alternate dimension, which is encroaching on theirs. Uh, And I actually did find it a little bit tough to hang with Millie Bobby Brown alone in the in a cabin with David Harbour while these kids are off having their adventure. Like, I think that I enjoy this show the most when there is the most ensemble moments going on when these kids are interacting in mixed up groups and later in the season like you get lots of different pairings and you get lots of different combinations which are very pleasant but just to defend my point which I agree I I want to say that I agree with you on something I think those two are the best actors in the series the devotion to them together well as long as they're on screen I'm happier but the show's commitment to showing how they met up and started living together in this cabin I don't care about that see I actually thought that that was the most kicking the can moment is that you could have easily shown these two how these two sort of got together to live in this yeah. cabin in like 10 seconds that's what i'm saying i don't and care about stretch that. it out yeah. over a, it's not yeah. th- there so is, i think th- that there is like a couple of times in these these first few episodes and i think throughout the second season that feel very much like we could handle this very quickly but we've got a lot more yarn to unspool like yeah, a lot and, more time to cover so we're going to kind of take our time with these beats and I think that that is that that's not even a criticism of the show, because I think that um, it's just the reality of you made one thing. It became a phenomenon. And now, you know, you're going to have to make a couple more of these. Yeah. So you can't burn everything in that it, one in the second season. I would say it's also a factor of the way the Duffer Brothers approach this material is that they these are these are 80s movies that they are making. Right. They I mean, this is Stranger Things, too. And, yeah. And because of that. The expository part of the movie isn't the first 25 minutes. It's the first three hours. And 
I, I would just say that there is a trend in um, genre television right now to show your work and show all your work. What would another and example of that be? Last week's Mr. Robot. Okay. I think that episode three of season three has some of the most, you know, virtuosic shots that the series has done. I think that the direction the season is off the chain. Obviously, Sam's our friend um, and will hear me say this and I would say it to his face. But that episode was devoted entirely to, and this is not a spoiler if you're not watching the season, really. It's, it's what happened to Tyrell. Mm-hmm. It's filling in all the backstory. It was more backstory than I needed. Your mileage may vary on that. But I wonder if this is a factor of, is this, in, and so in Stranger Things, showing every step of the way in which Eleven and Hopper reconnected down to like her throwing a dead squirrel at a hunter's face to steal his coat. Yeah. Are we showing that because we have nine hours and we got to fill it with something? And as you say, we don't want to give too much away yet because we're going to be making Stranger Things 3 inevitably. Um, or are we showing that because today's TV culture is so hyperspeed, like Westworldy, in that we have to prove, we have to show our work as creators. We have thought about this. We cannot leave any... I don't think that they have this problem. I don't think that Stranger Things has this problem. I don't think that the Upside Down or the Demi-Gorgon or any of this stuff f- f- like holds up to like the least bit of scrutiny. No, and I, and I hope that it doesn't. And I, and, and I don't think that they ever make... I don't think that they really... Th- there's a difference between them not thinking that, which is good, mm-hmm. and them thinking that but not doing a good enough job improving it, which is bad. Mm-hmm. I think if they're just like, look, the, the upside down is the darkness that's underneath yeah, your bed. It's let's, whatever let's, it is. Let's it's keep the moving. thing that goes bump in the night. Yeah. What's important is these kids who start out very innocent go through these incredibly traumatic things during an incredibly traumatic time, puberty, in their lives, and how their relationships change and grow. And honestly, like I think that they do a really good job of capturing this idea that like the first season of these kids is going to be like this golden moment for these kids, you know, and both mm. kind of like as actors too, you know what yeah. I mean? Like that kid will never be as cute as when he didn't have his front teeth. You know yeah. what I mean? And this, I, I, that's like a shot. I'm not even trying to take a shot at a little kid. I'm just saying like, there is like actually an acknowledgement of like, it's, it's tough growing older. It's tough. Like, but- being best friends, but also getting into girls and also being like, you abandoned me or you betrayed me or we have these rules, but you're not following them anymore. A lot of that stuff I thought was much, much more interesting than whether or not this is a government conspiracy or a supernatural I, I, whatever. And, I agree. And people yeah. should understand that your point there is being made not just as a fan of the show and as a critic, but as a veteran uh, casting agent for children <laughs> in Hollywood. I mean, you know yeah. this better than most, how yeah. hard it is to cast these kids and get them, put them in the situations to succeed. Um, we talked a lot about... I, so I, I agree with that. I think that my issue with this season so far is that it's a little bit... And again, this is so far. This is three episodes mm-hmm. in... Um, it's a little bit stuck in the middle for me in it is neither going great gonzo in terms of just a, a genre, you know, sci-fi like, yeah, yeah but, but also like PG 13 scare, you know, it, it's not going all the way in that direction, but neither is it going in the direction you're saying where this, I think it sort of is ventriloquizing these ideas of like, um, adolescence and difficulty, but I'm not really seeing them, you know, it's not going, it's not, it's not hitting me. Uh, viscerally yet, and it's not hitting me emotionally yet. So it's gotcha. just sort of sitting there and is or intellectually, pres- yeah. or intellectually, right. it, it is hitting neither of none of those three points. I couldn't help but keep. I kept thinking, of, wow, I just pulled a Carrie Bradshaw. I couldn't help but think of you know. Well, e. you have your laptop. Why don't you write this as a <laughs> column? Was I the Stranger Thing? Mm. Um, <laughs> I couldn't help but think about some of the stuff that people claim me to that Stranger Things heavily draws from. Yeah, and looking back on those movies and wondering well what did those movies do like i actually don't remember the emotional like resonance of et i think a lot of it is is in that visceral thing that you're talking about the combination of john williams music Mm -hmm. with soaring cameras and the idea of like capturing the the fact that when you're a kid everything is happening to you for the first time so these emotions feel huge even though you're essentially riding your bike well, also, and chasing a strange... Also the juxtaposition. Yeah. And as someone who saw that movie in the theater as a kid, you probably did too, six years old, saw E.T., the scene in the cornfield where they see they, they screams, that was the scariest moment of my life up to that point. Yeah. I, if you're talking about visceral reactions, that terrified me to my core. And yet it happened in the same movie where there was Reese's Pieces, which I knew I liked, and also bicycle riding, which I aspired to do one day. I mean, putting all those things together, that is probably what those movies did best, which was not treat 
childhood or adolescence with kid gloves, but suggests that it was a swampy mess of all these feelings and it's hard to separate them. And Stranger Things at its best echoes that. Yeah. But as it's pushing forward, I mean, I, I don't, I am not, I am not shipping Mike and Eleven, but that relationship has some resonance. It has, um, it has uh, weight behind it. It existed last year yeah. and it is potentially going in a different direction. And the way they played it, which I really appreciate um, in the early going, it's not even romantic because these are kids and she is a science experiment. But right. what it the, is, is the more like CW stuff is like is Nancy, and, which, which and we should get Steve to. But it's really Joe. just like Don. you need someone. Yeah, you need you need your person. And I appreciate that part of the show a lot. So by way of getting into that stuff, let me ask you a question. And this happens a lot especially with shows that I think develop incredibly passionate followings in their first season. Mm -hmm. And then they have to kind of live up to these expectations. And I think it's an, you could call it an artistic decision, but I think you could almost call it an editorial decision. I think, I know it's something that we talk about at the ringer, which is basically, do you want to go wider or do you want to go deeper? Mm -hmm. Do you want to cover more and more stuff Mm -hmm. or do you want to go really deep with the things that you're already talking about? And I think that you could apply this to the way that they expanded the cast of characters because you, you've talked to more showrunners than I have. You've talked to more TV writers than I have. You've been in writing rooms. Why is there an impulse to say, okay, I know it's like we have to freshen up the mix a little bit, but do you think that it sometimes takes away from like pretty valuable screen time of other characters when you're like, let's throw three more, four more people in here? Because now you're getting up around 12 people who are like, okay, I got to keep this person straight, this mm-hmm. person straight. But also like these characters are already starting out as archetypes because they're being drawn from a pop culture universe from, mm-hmm. from 30 years ago yeah. or whatever. It's, it's difficult to, I, it's an interesting decision on their part to be like, what we, what this show needed yeah. was four or five new people, not let's do just maybe a standalone episode with just Dustin or like, yeah, let's I, hang I, out I, with I, Nancy or, you know, let's hang out with Nancy's parents for a while. I, I, I agree with you. And I actually think that spreading the show, spreading the storylines and spreading the characters too thin is a, is a flaw early going here. I mean, I think it's it, it's not a unfamiliar tendency. I mean, that is what sequels when before sequels became just, you know, every movie would get one or they were or even, you know, they were greenlit before the first one even was released. That was always the impulse. Well, we'll just do the same thing, but bigger, louder, or more. We'll always add another element to it. I mean, look at the Lethal Weapon movies and how many characters got were on each poster successively. Sure, yeah, because um, we got to keep it fresh. We got to put an introduce a new element to it. I agree with you that I think it was probably unnecessary in this season. I mean, first of all, just shouts to the god Modine, who probably <laughs> thought he was coming back because he was he had an off camera kind of kind of uh, death yeah. or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, you know, Paul Reiser's agent gets the call. I'm happy with his addition. I think he's been great. Yeah, really reviving um, the Carter Burke from Alien. It's kind of nice. Yeah. He hasn't gone back to that in a minute. But um, but your other point, yes, because look, like the it's weird that the character with the most development, if you want to call it that, from one season to another, is um, the Andrew McCarthy dude with the hair. What's his name? Steve. Steve. Yeah. That guy. I mean, I don't know whether that's. Um, that was a good choice in season one to sort of not go in the direction we expected with right. him and have him not just be a jerk. But or it's just that the actor is winning and they like him and he's more charming than people thought going in or his hair became a meme. He's had the he's had the biggest development. Yeah. arc. Um, I am, by the way, I am Team Steve. I don't know if yeah. that's like a first of all, if, if you're not Team Steve. Yeah. What are you you're getting indicted? <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. I thought everyone was Team Jonathan. Who's Team Jonathan? I just think that was scripted for us to become Team Jonathan. Nah, dog. Let me tell you something. The DA agents at LAX are not <laughs> Team Jonathan. <laughs> so that's a that's a that's a rough look for my man. Um, although, shout to that guy, that actor because his name definitely sounds like a guy who has a production credit on Life of Pablo. It's Charlie Heaton. Charlie Heaton. Yeah. So Charlie Heaton is coming in with the track. Um, uh, but okay, I'm all over the place. But. Um, I, I don't know if we needed this other like, what are we even calling him? The the dude in the in the Camaro who is may or may not be Max's brother. Oh yeah. Um, I don't need that guy. Billy, right? I, I don't need this guy in my life right now. Like there's there are too many things to be juggling. And so if, if one of the things we are supposed to be caring about is this Nancy triangle. By the way, what, what, tell me. Let's talk about Nancy. Sure. Tell me something about Nancy. Tell me one thing about Nancy. She's a pretty good student. I got that vibe. She likes wearing loafers. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe doesn't quite watch over her friend's backs the way she should. Her investment in her friend's life seems a little bit like a retcon to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, 
I thought that Allison made a really good point about the Barb storyline, which was that it actually they use it as a that's a great you could have just as easily been like nothing in the first season matters to these people anymore and just mm-hmm. like had them hard reset. Yeah. Everybody's back to playing D&D and they are. They're like playing arcade games. I thought that was like a nice like the tech is getting updated. The mm-hmm. idea of technology is is kind of like becoming a bigger part of these kids lives. Mm-hmm. But uh the idea that they would still like have these vestiges of emotional sort of scar tissue from the season before. Yeah. I, I think that that actually works as a, we're not ready to let this go. And if we, if we need sort of an avatar for that, it's Nancy being bummed out about Barb and possibly being bummed out about Barb because she's like, it was my, you know, it was my negligence that the sort of led to her death. But it's also not just negligence. This is the it, it that speaks to the area of of teenage life or young life that the show wants to get credit for and wants to dance around but doesn't deal with. It that was more than anything else in the first season an example of um, the thread that ran through all the horror movies of the eighties, which is teenage sexuality equals death. Yeah. Right. As soon as you go off to hook up with someone, you will die. Your friends will die. Like that is the scary thing in the closet lurking for everybody. That's kind of what that scene was, right? I mean, that was the party, and she chose to go with the cool guy, and Barb got got. Yeah. Um, so I just have, I have one, it, I only have one note. It, I actually, so I obviously, I think I'm enjoying this a lot more than you are. Well, do you want to go big picture, bigger picture? With a, I have a question for you. Like, do you think, I'm saying these things, I'm not liking it as much. I don't, you know, I don't think it's as good. I think it's sort of it, blah, 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 whatever criticisms, criticisms I have of it. It strikes me as just a complete success story for Netflix because these guys, for whatever reason, whatever is in their DNA or their artistic sensibility, Netflix was like, yeah, we want that. People like that. We want more of that. They were like, done. Here is more of it. And sometimes there's just too much of it or whatever. But it is, there is... I, I don't want to be misquoted here. Like they, they took their mission, they accepted their mission, and they delivered also, on their mission. Like, they delivered more of it. I really, and quickly. really, really like hanging out in this world. It is. I find it an incredibly comfortable, comfortable watch. I, I, I'm finding it. Yeah, I thought I was. I mean, that was what I was expecting to go back to. But then I found myself with the with the polywogs and the like. Let's sell out our friends for our weird little slimy monsters. Like I. Eh. So I do. I do want to bring that up. That is actually something that haunts Spielberg movies. It's yeah. just like an overabundance of weird, dumb creatures. Yeah. And a lot of eighties movies are just like, and now this little like, you know, and you're just like, ah, come on dog. Can can I introduce you in an Ewok? I have to say, man, I have a note for these kids. Yeah. If you went through what you went through in the first season and then you discover a species of unknown origin that in any way resembles a demigorgon mm-hmm. it's a demigorgon yeah and like you don't need to be jane goodall to know <laughs> that's a bad look homie yeah light it on fire immediately right now <laughs> yeah also all this talk about their group being a democracy then all of a sudden doesn't just go and rogue i know i mean come on man <laughs> also it's gross don't put it on your head what is what is the upside here literally this kid just had his developed his first crush yeah. on the person who usurped him at Dig Dug. Ten minutes later, <laughs> he's like, "Nah, I'm good on girls for a minute." Yeah, because I've got like I've, definitely like a demon. I've got a screeching snot rocket. <laughs> yeah, that I have evicted my turtle for. Yurtle, man, let Yurtle keep his home. Also, last point, yeah. I forgot about this because there's a lot of characters. Can we talk about the real glaring absence at the heart of Stranger Things too? Sure. What about Bono, though? Yeah, man. What about Bono, though? Wait, wait, wait. wait, What did you say? What about... Did you say what about Bono, though? I'm just saying, Cara Bono showed up to do two things. Get her hair feathered and act the shit out of a thankless role. What about Holly's out here just, like, gorging herself on ham? She can't get one line? She didn't learn how to speak in the years since? Now, wait. There is a brave tradition of letting baby Holly's not... Act on television, but she got pump. She's got to eat ham the entire show. <laughs> what would you rather be doing on set? <laughs> eating ham? Yo, you get salted out if you were just like sitting there eating the the buono ham every night. Do you think she's like retaining water due to sodium intake? No, Is I just mean like I think that you could have just been like, here's like a Kit Kat or something like that, just to mix it up. Maybe something with nougat in it. I want to talk about buono though. You do want to talk about Bono. I just want to say, like, she's dope. You need to get her some minutes. Yeah, just pass her the ball. She's Nerlens. You need to find her rim running and let her cook. I know. I mean, you've watched forward. Is there more Buono for me? I apparently, the rumor has it, there is more Buono. But mm-hmm. actually, I am up to this. I'm, uh, I'm up to the last episode. Yeah. And there has been next to no Buono. 
Wow. Yeah. That is a tough one yeah. because you want me to keep watching this because more bueno is always bueno. <laughs> like that's what we want. Um, all right, man, let's I, take a quick break I hear from our sponsors. We're going to talk about episodes four through seven, I guess. Right. Four, five, four, and five, six, six, three at a time. Yeah. yeah it's three at a time. Um, so we'll talk about those on Thursday and uh, let's take a quick break here from our sponsors. We'll come back, talk about the season finale of the deuce. And Andy has a great conversation coming with Megan Abbott. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Stitcher. Game of Thrones fans, check out Stitcher Premium for over 30 hours of exclusive Game of Thrones content, including Hardcore Game of Thrones, an addictive series that is one part mockumentary, one part satire. Listen along as comedian Alex Berg dives into the complicated history of Westeros. The Daily Dot called it an absolute must-listen for fans. Plus, Stitcher Premium now has audio from 16 sessions of Con of Thrones, the largest ever convention for GOT fans. Geek out with talent interviews and expert discussions touching on topics like race, gender, and possible spinoffs. Start listening now with a one month free trial to Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code watch to check out to get your free month. That's stitcher.com slash premium. Andy, we are back. We are here to talk about the season one finale of The Deuce, and we're going to be joined in a few minutes by Deuce staff writer and accomplished novelist. One of our, like, really, we're really excited to talk to her. Uh, you're going to be talking to her, uh, Megan Abbott. Yep. Um, I read Matt Zoller's sites wrote like sort of a, a year end review mm-hmm. of of the deuce that went up last night, and this I thought is over it, this is over at Vulture. Yeah, I thought it might be a good place to start our quick conversation. Maybe we can rehit the episode a little bit later, but it, it was basically like the deuce was really good, but I can't blame you if you had a hard time watching it. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people, and uh, I do think that anecdotally, the show did not like grip the nation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I was sort of, I have been sort of negotiating with myself. I mean, like, I think I really like hanging out at the Hyatt. I talked to you about that. Mm-hmm. Like, I've, but I've, I have definitely found like a little bit of like internal resistance when I get to Sunday night of being like, yeah, I want to dial this up. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the finale? Yeah. My, my, my wife pulled the ripcord after episode two. So I've been solo, yeah. solo flying this ship. Um, I love the show. I loved this season. Um, I thought the finale was really artfully done. Um, but my, my criticism of the show, if you squint, is actually kind of a compliment, which is it wasn't long enough. Um, and if you read, um, David Simon and George Pelicanos did interviews with Alan Sepinwall over at HitFixed, looking back on the season, and you can read between the lines and Simon actually doesn't really ever beat around the bush. He's basically like, we were given eight episodes and we could do 10, we could do 12. Sometimes he basically said, I feel like 12 is a optimal storytelling, um, uh, that, that's an model. optimal amount, yeah. Yeah, yeah, model for an optimal storytelling. Uh, considering how um, intricate these guys are with their storytelling, how important it is for, as they said in the wire, for all the pieces to matter. I'm really impressed that they were able to give us as much as they did. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you when we think back with great fondness as we do on the wire, the things that we remember aren't necessarily the key development in the wiretapping case. You know, or the moment that 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 one of the runners or whatever screwed up, thus allowing them to sure. whatever. We remember Omar with Honey Nut Cheerios. You know, we remember the the character beats, yeah, the humanity, the Irish wake, whatever, the Irish yeah. wake. On a show about nightlife, and I say that value neutral, <laughs> um, in New York City at that era, obviously the Deuce is ripe for those moments. And it gave us some wonderful ones. And you and I, every time we talk about the show, we talk about the hi-hat and how tremendous that, that vibe was and the idea of everyone drinks here tonight. And, and even in the finale, there's this scene where a, a band based on a real-life guy is performing 96 Tears, and mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, punk is going to happen. Punk's here. All the, all the, all the um, ingredients are here, and it's just starting to boil. This show had those things. Yeah. But frankly, it didn't have enough time to optimally do both, I think. And you know, you could flip this and say... It's kind of a gift in this age of too much TV to say they gave me eight hours and I wanted more. Right. But they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. But frankly, like the, the turns some characters make, and I wanted more build up to those turns. And in these interviews, they've talked about how they wish they'd been able to go deeper with Paul going downtown. You know, they wish that they had been able to um, foreground uh, Vinnie more. 
I'm not Vinny, uh, Frankie more so that we would understand that him as less than just comic relief. Yeah, right. As more than just comic relief. And then there's these other characters that in typical Simon and Pelicanos fashion, they introduce. And I'm like, oh, yeah, more of that. Like um, like Big Mike or Black Frankie yeah. or the other pimps that we didn't get to spend nearly as much time with as we maybe would have thought. Um, Cece, for example, from his prominence in the first two episodes to his return prominence at the end. Um, it was all there. Um, and so I, I, I wanted more. And it's especially because the finale was um, didn't wrap up as much as I thought it was going to wrap up, considering we're doing a time jump, mm-hmm. considering the next season is going to pick up in 77 or 78. And some of these characters won't be along for the ride or some of them won't be recognizable when we see them again. Do you think that um, the model I mean, we're talking about the amount of episodes, but they do a very specific thing, which is and Dickens gets referenced many times throughout the season, but it, and there is always the Dickensian element mm-hmm. joke of, of The Wire, but the tapestry of characters and the threads that are all generally pointed in the same direction and may have a couple of overlapping points mm-hmm. geographically in, in the show, it's the bar. But that is actually an atypical way of telling a television story these days where you're just like, we have like 12 storylines mm-hmm. going right now. Uh, and it's up to you to sort of be patient, allow these things to develop in the time. That actually was like relatively, you know, it was pretty breathtaking when they did it on the wire. And I feel like a lot of people respected it a lot, but television itself, I think has gone away from that. Mm-hmm. I think they try to tell an A, B, B, B and a half plot, you know, in an episode, but so much of what our television watching habits are based around central mysteries oh, or unlocking look, something or answering some question. We, we, the, the deuce is, not really asking a ton of questions. It's more showing what happens. We know? all have the same Mount Rushmore of TV dramas, basically. But the most influential show by a wide margin is Breaking Bad. The, 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 the footprint of or the shadow of Sopranos is receding every day. Of, of, of Mad Men is not nearly what you and I would, would like it to be. And also, I mean, not for nothing, part, possibly because every show that tried to rip off Mad Men, for the most part, has failed. Well, th- yeah, that's because they all tried to recreate the sizzle, not the steak. Yeah. They didn't understand what was good about the yeah. show. Breaking Bad was re- revolutionary because it asked, as you said, it asked one question and then tracked it beginning to end that sells i mean it didn't obviously the show wasn't a hit from the beginning and you always used to use the metaphor or the image of of a clock and like the idea of this precision Mm -hmm. engineering of the story and this kind of like i think that there is an almost organic fuck it let's do it live feeling to the deuce no matter how meticulously Mm -hmm. it's obviously been drawn out like i think they allow it to feel very human and that can sometimes feel ugly and uncomfortable i mean this is a show about um about what happened in New York City. It's a show about the degradation of humans, of people, of sexuality, of women in particular. Um, it's a show about people in transition, in a city in transition. Yeah. And it, I mean, what's the question it's asking? Well, it doesn't have a happy ending. Exactly. I mean, we we know that going in. So for me, it's I, I think that this show is unquestionably a success, but it's kind of a tweener in that um, it's, it, it could be more. Yeah. It probably could be less too, but I wouldn't like that version of it. Um, and I'm incredibly excited for them to come back and do more. I'm excited to talk to Megan about her experience doing it. Um, you know, I, I think that people should check out, listen to this interview with Megan, check out interviews with Simon and Pelicanos, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to George again and maybe even yeah. the big guy himself. Because the one thing that is worth noting about the show, to go back to, to Matt Seitz's thing, I don't know who's going to fire the season up again because it, it doesn't feel that good often to watch it. But if you consider it or reconsider it, there is so much thought and intention and humanity gifted to every scene and every character. That's a hallmark of what they do. And so there was a, you know, there's a surprise death in the finale. Uh, Ruby slash Thunder Thighs yeah. is killed. And it's jarring because, you know, it, the show can lull you into a feeling of, I like hanging out with these people. We talked about that a week and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but if you think about it, does it seem out of the blue? Yes, but that's the point. That's 100% the point of it, because that's what life could be like for people who live on the margins. Yeah, and I think that like it that. captures a, an experience that's very specific to New York City, pretty specific to East Coast cities where you're living, and you're confronted with really like hu- human tragedies on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis that you get splashed across tabloid mm-hmm. pages that get turned into puns. You know, that get turned headless into, body and topless yeah, bar. anecdotes, things you tell people at the mm-hmm. bar that night. Did you hear about this guy mm-hmm. jumped in front of a subway? You know, like all this stuff. Yeah. And 
the sh- the way the show handles violence and the way the show handles its uh, th- those moments is it's almost it, it almost it's not quite an indictment on the viewer, but it did make me confront the participation in that in that in that world, you know. And I think we talk obviously a lot about like most of the double down book club selections we have are crime books. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Very deeply investigate like the human element of crime, but it was very strange to. Th- consider the ruby death because it it was handled in such a way where i was like i feel awful about yeah this. and then the characters even characters we love that's why are like we got to get a new awning yeah and in the end and and vinnie's like look i liked her but he doesn't even use her name and and i think the show pushes back on that because there's there's the moment where yeah, he says that's true he says i don't want to see that and um you know, and, and then the response is, you mean you don't want to see her? You know, she has a name. Like, these people have names. And that's kind of what the show's about. And and we're not even getting to the fact and that, that you know, for the majority of people, I don't mean this as an, as an indictment, it's a weird choice of words today, of, of viewers, but they never explicitly come out and say, in a very David Simon fashion, okay, so what happened with prostitution was precisely yes. because John Lindsay was running for president. Yes. And he didn't want to run for president where people would look in his backyard and say, you have open prostitution in your city. Right. That is only that's why this happened. But, you know, in, but what interests them more isn't the big picture politician who's never shown what has always interested these people, Simon and Pelicanos and, you know, Richard Price and all the great crime writers is, OK, so someone pushed the first domino. Then what happens? Yeah. The little dominoes. And what's it like and, to feel like you're the fourth domino? Okay. Andy's going to talk to Deuce writer Megan Abbott now. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss more Stranger Things and I'm sure a couple of other things. Uh, until then, enjoy your interview with Matt. I'm taking over. So excited to have on the phone right now from New York, I think, I didn't even ask, um, is the Deuce writer and author of Dare Me, The Fever, You Will Know Me, many other books, Megan Abbott. Megan, thank you for joining us on The Watch today. Hey, so happy to be here. Um, I'm in Queens, New York, um, overlooking the Long Island Railroad. So. Oh, that's good. You've, you've painted a picture. It's very scenic. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to talk to you because obviously um, we, we've talked about this on the show before. Chris and I are big fans of your work, and we were so excited when we saw that you had joined this murderer's row of, of novelists and writers on the staff of The Deuce. Um, I guess the, I want to talk about how you joined up with, with that gang, but um, first and foremost, I wanted to speak to you about the finale, last night's finale. Yes. Which... When we emailed last week, you said you were excited to see it because you hadn't actually seen it. And I assume you have now remedied that. Yes, I did. I did watch it. Um, I, and I didn't want to say why when we because you hadn't seen it yet when we were emailing. But I was really not. Uh, there was a particular scene um, that I was not looking forward to watching, which was the loss of one of our characters. So, yeah, that's, you know, Chris and I were just talking about that. Um, maybe we should start there, because one of the, the things that was so jarring about it, and I guess it's twofold, one is that. The brilliance of the deuce is that it, it it can lull the viewer into feeling, you know, a sense of, of pleasure and excitement about being in this often unseemly world. Um, and this jolted us right out of it. The other thing is yeah. that that this was, you know, an act of horrific violence. And but it was so sudden, you know, it, it came out of nowhere, which I believe was the point. But it still was it, it, it threw us. I imagine it threw a lot of people. So can you can you tell me about yeah. that, con- that the conversations in the room? What led to Ruby being the one who passed away on the show, and 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 all the debate that went around it? Yeah, it was the plan from the start, um, which I guess gave um, gave me sort of some some time to uh, adjust to it. But at the same time, um, because we knew this was how it was going to end, um, this was a story that George and David knew a real life story that they wanted to work into it. So we knew that we were going leading there because of that. Um, we really wanted to to make Rudy a Ruby a significant enough character that that you cared, obviously, or else it is meaningless. Um, but the whole point was that it would be so jarring because anybody, it's a you know, it's a it's a high risk world, and um, and to sort of forget the, the the casualties that are involved in that and how whatever form they take would have been, I guess, irresponsible on our part. But it doesn't. Make Make it any easier, you know. Um, it was a little easier killing a pimp, honestly, um, than to lose Ruby, who we cared about a lot. Um, Lisa Letts, the other, the other woman in the room. Um, 
she she who she wrote episode four that has a great scene between Ruby and Candy, and one of the reasons for that scene is because she knew what was coming. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and that it would be sudden, and that it wouldn't be. Um, they really wanted it to feel as as brisk as sudden as violence is in real life, you know. Um, and um, and and that was the goal, and I think it certainly felt that way watching it. And one of the hallmarks of a David Simon show was present in the next scene, the follow-up scenes as well, which is that there's no sentimentality about even the quote-unquote good guys, where you know we cut to, um, we get Vinny's reaction to it, and he's someone who, through the charm of Franco's performance and also just our way into the world, we see, see him as a pretty decent guy, and he probably is a pretty decent guy, but even he is just inured to it. This is just, he doesn't want to see that. You know, they need a new awning, which was probably shocking and very much intentional in and of itself. Right, and and I think it is a sort of a turn for Vincent, you know, that this hardening that we've seen in him, even as he's still resisting his role, um, he he continues to be willing to to make uh, to compromise himself, um, and you know we certainly see it in the pilot that is he's not going to intervene, he's not an intervener, you know. There's right. that scene in the pilot with with Cece um, assaulting Ashley, and it was really that was important too. But but I think where we end up. Um, um, and given how much everyone really likes Ruby on the show, um, I think it is a sign that he's, you know, he is getting inured to this in ways that are that are troubling. And it's a nice note for Abby in that scene that she's obviously so affected by it. And that is a difference between the two of them. I think I read in one of the um, postmortem interviews today that um, David and George were saying that the character of Thunderthighs was Thunderthighs in the script until Lisa, who you mentioned as another writer, came in and said, "No, she needs a, she needs a name. That's very important." I think that just speaks to the importance of having female voices in the room. Can you talk about how you hooked up with with David and George? Because for as much as The Wire is, you know, recognized by many as one of, if not the best shows of all time, it was kind of a sausage party. Indeed. I don't know if that's a technical and, you know, term. Woman doesn't want to be invited to one of those. You know? um, no, it was you know it was kind of a long uh, dance because this has been in, this was you know George and David had their mind on this for a long time, but it was actually it was several years ago. I want to say maybe three years ago or maybe even four. Um, I had met David a few times, and I knew George from the crime fiction community, which is actually pretty tight, um, and. Um, David called me, and I'd really only met him a few times. Um, we had talked about movies. Um, his wife is the great crime writer, Laura Lippman, so mm-hmm. I had, that's how I had met him. And um, um, he he told me about the project, and he, you know, and George similarly approached Lisa and told her about it. And they just asked us if they they said they were upfront that they wanted women in the room, um, and they wanted crime novelists. And so so they asked if we'd be interested and. It was like, you know, hmm, <laughs> David Simon, George Pelicanos, Richard Price, you know, it was, uh, is there like the holy trinity among crime writers, you know? So it was it was sort of terrifying, but it was still really in development then. So I, I sort of put aside my terror and thought, well, it'll probably never happen. <laughs> and, uh, and then it did. And then Lisa and I had to walk into that room <laughs> with those guys. Um, it was very intimidating at first, I have to say. Um, we were pretty scared. Um, just we neither of us had ever staffed on a show, mm-hmm. even. So not only it was our first time, but we were with these guys. So um, yeah, we had to really. I took a Xanax that morning. <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm not ashamed <laughs> to say it. <laughs> what What was um, overall? What was that experience like for you? Not just working with those guys in particular, but coming from the life of a novelist, which is generally fairly solitary, um, to the, 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 the often fiery collaborative nature of a writer's room. Yeah, it really, wow, it was really, um, it was really trial by fire, you know, it was not, it's, it's not my rhythm, as they say, I'm used to being by myself all the time, I'm mostly used to making all of the decisions, at least in the early stages, mm-hmm. first few drafts of a novel, like, no one's telling me what to do at all, no one's giving their thoughts, I'm not getting notes, there's nothing, I get to decide what happens to everybody, and this, of course, is the opposite of that, um, it made it easier in some way that, that really, David and George already had a vision. They really had a story they wanted to tell. And so um, it was really building out that world, and in particular, building out all the women. Um, and, you 
know, really coming at it. And they really wanted us to, at first I thought I would hang back, you know, at least the first few days, you know, and just observe and see what this dynamic is like. But there was no holding back um, because they, they didn't want us to do that. They wanted us to talk. And inevitably with this subject matter, when you're dealing with sex work and porn, it, uh, as a woman writer, I just could not shut up. So I just started talking and I was just, you know, I was in it and, uh, and it was a lively room, you know, really right out of the gate, you know? Um, and we, you know, had lots of debates and discussions and I felt we fought all the time. I think David and George would say we never had a fight in that room because they don't consider it fighting. But uh, for me, it is. (laughs) Well, can, can, can you speak to some specific examples of that? Because I know, I mean, the beauty and the frustration of a TV writer room is that everything ultimately does kind of smear and become collaborative and it's hard to, to, to pick one thing out as one person's work because it's all connected. But with that uh, being said, can you talk about things in particular that you felt you championed or were able to bring to the show um, that wouldn't have been there had you either not been there or had, had you continued taking Xanax every day? Well, I think, I mean, I, I'm sure this would have happened anyway, but this is definitely what Lisa and I focused on, which was, which was really, that this, that these women could not just be victims and they couldn't all be the same and they couldn't all be dealing with their commodification in the same way. And that one of the things that we thought early on, and we had read a lot and we had come in with our research and, you know, but that, that, you know, but you also know this from life that no one responds to, um, difficult situations in the same way and that some people are just more built for that and that is something that that I'd read a lot about um, and with some of the consultants, the sex workers, that some women um, handle that job and it doesn't hit them or affect them in the same way. Um, They're just they just have this real resilience to it, um, and others cannot and do not. And you know, we wanted to have that range, and we we wanted to avoid certain stereotypes that everyone wanted to avoid. You know, the hooker with the heart of gold. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so so we just wanted we wanted all these women to have separate personalities and to be different, and we also really wanted them to drive the story. And so we really came in pitching ideas for for Darlene, you know, mm-hmm. and, and for Candy, and for and for Ashley, for getting them in there so they're not just not the men driving the action, which I think is so so much the default. It's not mm-hmm. even seen as the default. It's how I, story is defined in television. It, it's totally true. And I, and I also think a, um, a default setting for stories written by men or from a male perspective often considers sexuality as an on-off switch, like in the scenes where it matters, where if it's a sex scene or a negotiation, then it's on and in everything else it's off. And I think one of the hallmarks of, of your fiction in really insightful and, and sometimes insidious ways is that sexuality is alive in almost every interaction at even at surprising times. And I, and I wonder if that was part of the conversation as well in the room. Yeah, we talked. We did. We talked really a lot about power um, and loss of power, and and what it means to be complicit um, and culpable. Um, and you know that's something I've always been interested in in gender dynamics. And um, and it's you know my gosh, the last month it's been in the news almost constantly. Mm-hmm. So it's this weird sort of parallel to the show. But how involved can you be in someone else's humiliation or commodification? or um, or sort of being at the hands of abuse and how close can you be to that and not be complicit in mm-hmm. it? And that that was just, that's something that, that just fascinates me and that was something that, that David, George, and Richard were all interested in from the start and they were interested in it from the point of view, you know, particularly of Vincent, um, but, but, you know, also, and I was more interested in from the point of view from some of the women, you know, what does the, what does it mean for Darlene to, to, to go and bring her cousin up mm-hmm. um, and put her out on the street? And what does it mean for Candy to be getting behind the camera? And and that just, I mean, you know, and, and how much is that her empowering himself and how much is, is that at the sort of, to the detriment of other women? And when, when does that point turn? When's the pivot? Yeah, and it's right there in that scene in the finale where Candy uh, drives by Ruby. And, and she's on her yeah. way to something else and she's gone. And what allowed her to be there? What made her different? Why was Ruby, I mean, you address it directly. Why was she back on the street and the other women weren't? And she says, you know, it, it's not, she's not chosen in those rooms. It, people are left behind, which is a hallmark, of course, of all of David Simon's shows, but it, it plays yeah. out in a very insidious way on the deuce. 
Yes, I mean everyone is so compromised by the ending. Even you know, you know. I mean, the, the sort of Ashley's sort of exit in the la- last episode mm-hmm. was really the closest we got to that. And this one, everyone's in it. And there's that line that I'm going to misquote now, but that Vincent said, you know, you know, it's it's like the, it's Chinatown line. It's the deuce, you know, mm-hmm. and the, you know, women are going to go out of windows, and there's going to be casualties here, and. Uh, and you know that's just that's where they live. That's the world they live in. In um, in, in watching the show, it, it's hard to believe, considering some of the grim subject matter that it that it tackles. But there are moments of of levity and pleasure. That's what makes the show so good. And there are characters that you know you want to spend time with. And my only complaint about the season that I talked about before you joined us was it just wasn't long enough. Um, I wish yeah. there was more, which is a you know better than the alternative, which we get too often these days with TV. But you know there are characters like Big Mike or Black Frankie, like people I. I want more of them. Can we follow them a little bit? I, I wondered if in the room were there particular characters that that you found or a bunch of you were lobbying for more screen time for that just didn't make sense in the season and in the limits that you had. Yes, because we really, I mean, it was never intended to be eight episodes. That was sort of a negotiation among people more powerful than myself. Mm-hmm. But we did, it did feel really hard because we had this great, great cast. And then once they started to, you know, once they started to go into production, you were seeing these actors, then you had characters that you hadn't even anticipated, like Harvey, you know, oh, David yeah. Krumholtz, who's so great. And then all of a sudden, all we wanted to do was write scenes for Harvey, you know. And so it just becomes this sort of wealth of possibility, and you just and you want to service them all. And then I think Flanagan, who's so good, who's mm-hmm. Alston's partner, I think he was originally intended to, to, to be a much smaller character, but he was so good. And then, you know, he sort of emerged like, you know, so it was very frustrating from a practical standpoint. Like who, you know, I had to remember ultimately who the core was and whose stories that we had to service. And so in the room, if you wanted to get, if you wanted to get like, I want to get more of Ashley in there, then you had to, you know, somehow attach it to one of these other oh, bigger yeah. dynamics, you know, like, so that was the sort of behind the scenes strategizing that I would do like, let's, you know, and, uh, so that's how we get and, Ashley and, and Frankie together because, so that's why we get more, yeah. because he, right, we get more Ashley because Frankie's involved in that storyline. Exactly. Right. And then it served this weird, great purpose of making Frankie a little richer and, and not, you know, he's, he's so funny, but, he, you know, that he's not just funny. There are other nuances to him. Mm-hmm. We got a little bit of that there. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that that's good, too. So it was like kind of finding all these ways to, to give grace notes to everybody and to show the actors that are really funny, which is virtually all of them, to get them to show that a little um, and to show them having fun um, in the moment that you can. Yeah, it's not because um, it's not, it's not just slightly frustrating that that the season itself was short. It's that now we know because people are speaking about it publicly that the show is now going to jump forward in time, um, and the second season is you know likely to come in at seventy seven or seventy eight or wherever you guys determine is the right inflection point. But you know, watching that finale, you know, not that I expect things to be wrapped up with a nice bow, but it felt like oh no, let's come back tomorrow. Why are we going to skip six years? Because there's more here. So I don't want to get you in trouble with anyone involved with the production, but how much can you talk about the thinking, pitching the show forward and then, you know, forward another however many years for the potential third season should we get there? Yeah, it, it's a real, like, it's been a real brain scramble for us in the room, you know, because we had that, we, you know, that is the vision, and I think it's really great. Like, it's a story that that, they, that David and George want to tell about Times Square really necessitates us doing that. And it is interesting to drop in, and, I mean, there are challenges to it that are exciting. Like, where is Candy going to be, you know, at this stage? You know, thinking about what's going on in, in porn by the late 70s, which is sort of really at its heyday, its peak. But it, it is a, you know, I mean, when we sort of con- began to convene for season two already, and when we did, David was really firm that you need to make the case for that we, these the, the character you're, you want to pitch a story for is still here, mm-hmm. you know, six, seven years later. Why would they still be here? Because the story we're telling is of this place, of this world. That's that's our commitment. Um, so that is, you know, and this life is hard. And, you know, people, there's not a lot of people that make it that long in that world, you know. So you really, you know, it's made us do a lot of head scratching and a lot of, you know, um, you know, sort of 
you know, maneuvering to try to make a case for it, you know, and I think, I think we're getting there, but, um, you know, inevitably, you know, we, we feel like it's a bloodbath in the room sometimes, like, who, who are we going to lose? Um, we're trying to keep everybody we can. <laughs> and I'm sure the actors are lobbying, too, as hard as they can, that they still want to be there. Yeah. Um, can yes, you, and they all deserve it. <laughs> can you um, just give me your, this is the pure, well, no, then we see the second season, how you, how you fared in your battles in the room, but, but who, who is number one on Megan's call sheet? Like, who are you making the case for that might not make any sense to the casual fan of the show? Oh, well, let's, I think probably what some of my, like some of my favorites are for the obvious favorites. Like I'll always pitch Darlene's stories because I loved her so much just from the pilot, but I think she's very much a favorite. I, I have to admit, I have a real soft spot for Bobby, who's played by mm-hmm. Chris Bauer, who was so, all of us who watch The Wire have such fondness for. And on the page, I was not that interested in Bobby um, when I first read the pilot. No, he's not even in the pilot, so I guess it was episode two. But I, once Chris Bauer started to play him, I just loved his deadpan, <laughs> his whole delivery, the way he was responds to his new role as his madam of that parlor, um, all of that. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, I, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what Bobby might be up to. Here, here's, here's the key to keeping him around for the second season six years later. Don't let him climb any stairs. Just... <laughs> Yes. My takeaway from season one is stairs are the secret killer of the 70s. It happened constantly. Oh, right. It's a bad sign. It's it bad. is. It really is. If you see a guy wheezing on, the, on a walk-up, you know he's, he's marked for death. Um, I think about that when I go up to the room, the writer's room. You know? Right. Maybe, maybe they're commenting on that. Maybe someone is saying, yes, get an elevator. Yes. Um, That's right. It's a sign. Well, I, I hope we'll get to talk to you about season two in the future, but I did want to pivot. I mentioned this to you in the email. We do a book club. The Double Down Book Club is part of the podcast, and we would love to have everyone read one of your books next because um, we're excited to share your books with people. I think there are many great choices. This is I even emailed you, which was sort of cheating to see what you preferred. And you were <laughs> no, that's okay. very diplomatic about it. I think that after discussion, we decided to go with Queen Pin because um, a lot of the books that we were reading are kind of celebrations of genre and the possibilities of genre. And if, I mean, I, you can correct me if you don't feel this way, but I feel like in many ways that's the purest genre in your catalog and it might be a fun jumping Absolutely. off point. So can you, can you talk yeah. about that book a little bit so that people who are now hopefully going to rush to their stores and pick it up? Yes, rush out. Yeah, no, I'm glad you picked that because it does have, it just seems to be the one that people find of my books for, it seems to be the gateway for right. people who have read some of my books. And I, cause I think it is really, you know, I am such a lover of the real hard boiled classics, you know, and Hammett and Chandler and David Goodis and all those guys. I really, you know, it's one of the, my first conversations with George Pelicanos was about, about that world and uh, our favorite, favorite books from it. So I just really wanted to do, um, but those books do not have a lot of women in it. <laughs> Let's just be right. honest. They don't have a lot of women in them. Um, and when they do, they tend to be the femme fatale, um, uh, or occasionally the, the wife or the waitress at the diner, you know, they just don't have very many prominent roles in classic hard boiled. So I wanted to do, to take a real, real classic story structure from that era, inspired a lot by the grifters and things like it, where it's the criminal, the aging criminal who is the mentor to the young, the young, uh, it's usually the young guy and he's going to show him the tricks of the trade and, and then something happens. Um, and so I wanted to do a female version of that. So this is the story of a, of a woman who's, sort of a, you know, a money launderer and sort of a attache um, for the mob. Um, and, um, and she um, is sort of mentoring a younger woman to, to learn the tricks of that trade. And, um, and in my head, I picture Angelica Houston from the Grifters nice. as, as the older woman. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you can fill in the blank for the younger one. Uh, but, but that was the inspiration. Well, I think people are going to love it. And I, and I, I I hope that after people read it, you can join us again to talk about it because it's both terrific as a book in and of itself, but it, it, it opens up a really interesting conversation about the malleability of the form and the value of the enduring value of the form and what you can do with these um, sort of existing tropes. Now you can push against them, which I think is the place where a lot of the best work today is being made by taking things a little bit familiar and then sort of blowing out the walls and windows and, 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 and giving, it a different, um, giving it a different point of view. 
Yeah, right. And I think ultimately some some of the things you realize are what's more interesting is not what changes by changing the gender, but what stays the same. And then, then that, you know, um, that, that's, I guess, like a TBT, to be continued discussion. But I, I, I was surprised by that when I, when I finished it. So. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for joining us. Congratulations on the first season of, of The Deuce. Um, we're excited to read Queen Pin. And please um, take the elevator so that you can, you and the rest of the writers. <laughs> well, I've, I've learned the lesson. Just, I will heed your tale. <laughs> we, we just want you guys there for all three seasons. And, and, and hopefully maybe there'll right. be more, but we'll see. Um, thank you for joining okay. us. Thank you so much. Okay. I want to thank Megan Abbott again for joining us to talk about the first season of The Deuce. We broke news. Queen Pin by Megan Abbott. That is the next selection in the Double Down Book Club. We are going to be reading it for the next month or so. Maybe we'll come back in after Thanksgiving to talk about it. It's not a very long book. It is a fun read. I think people are going to enjoy it. Um, go out and get it at your local independent booksellers or the big ones that you can access on your cell phone. Queen Pin by Megan Abbott. Uh, we will be back Thursday. Chris already said it, but he's not here right now, so I can say it. And I can say to myself that I did a great job today. Christine Bransky, I did.